Good evening and you are very welcome to this week's episode of Let's Go Green here on Midlands 103. On this evening's show, we are going to be talking to a young Midlands woman fresh from the Middle East after a successful visit to Junk Couture. But first off, we're talking wildlife and specifically the curlew. And to talk about why we should be very concerned, we're joined now by Niall Hatch of Birdwatch Ireland. Niall, you are welcome back to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Niall, the curlew, like I think it's fair to say that most of us growing up in Ireland, like the curlew would have particularly here in the Midlands, the curlew would have been discussed in school, you know, listening to older people. They would have talked of the the sound that the curlew and, you know, that song that the curlew uh, emits that's particularly distinctive. Mm. It's been part of our history for generations. And I think... It's always been, for my generation at least, the talk has always been around the decline of the curlew. But am I right in saying that we're we're now at crisis crisis point? Yes, I think that's a, a very fair assessment. So that wonderful cry of the curlew, for me, that was always the sound of Wild Ireland. It was one of the most evocative sounds in all of nature. Uh, I know many people have probably heard recordings of it, but fewer and fewer people around today have actually heard the the thing in real life. I remember as a mm. child hearing it in the Wicklow Mountains. I used to go walking there with my father and I would hear it quite commonly. The species is now extinct as a breeder in the Wicklow Mountains, indeed the entirety of County Wicklow, uh, which is where I still live. Uh, the The situation is that we know there have been declines, but it was, wasn't until around 2011 that we in Birdwatch Ireland actually quantified just how severe those declines had been. And that has been uh, followed up then by the National Parks and Wildlife Service with other studies and surveys. It seems that uh, since the 1980s, there has been a decline of up to 98% in the breeding population of this species, which is absolutely devastating. It's gone from uh, around five and a half thousand pairs to maybe as few as 105 breeding pairs uh, today, which is is catastrophic. And when you see a species disappearing that rapidly, it really points to something going seriously wrong in the ecosystem, which is the other key thing here. It's not just about saving the curlew, important Mm. though that is for its own sake. It's what it represents. The fact that the curlew at the top of its food chain has declined so drastically shows that so many other creatures and plants as well are vanishing and our ecosystem is breaking down. So so on that, for the ecosystem here, um, how important is the curlew? For people who are not familiar with the curlew, because there, there are many people listening who may not have heard this conversation before. Yeah. Um, so t- talk me through it. How significant um, a, 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 an, a, an animal, how important is the curlew to our ecosystem here in Ireland? Well, I think if we were doing this interview a few decades ago, the curlew would hardly need any introduction. It was a species that was more or less ubiquitous across the wilder parts of Ireland. For for the listeners who don't know it, it's a member of the wader family. It's our largest breeding wade that we have in Ireland. And the waders, they tend to be sort of brown and or grey coloured birds with long legs and long beaks. The curlew is particularly attractive when you see it up close. It's a lovely camouflage pattern of different brown streaks with long legs. But the most striking feature, it has this very, very long down curved beak, like a half moon shape which is really distinctive. There's no, not really any other bird you would see through most of the year in Ireland that looks like that. But previously, that would have been a common sight on farmland and bogland and uplands all across Ireland. Uh, but from the, the middle part of the 20th century onwards, it started to disappear. 
and even by the 1980s, when a lot of the surveys date from it had already declined quite a lot by then. Uh, it, it was, I suppose, a, an early casualty of the real shift and the intensification in Irish agriculture. Uh, we know that curlews from, from elsewhere in the world, they don't handle change well and their habitat vanished. And this bird was pushed from being a species that was found on farms all across Ireland to being a species that was pushed out to the margins, some of the rougher land that was harder to farm, uh, some of the bogs and the upland areas. It became very much associated with those as though that was its natural habitat or the only place it would live. It was once much more widespread than that. Okay. And that... And that's that's so it, I suppose in that case, it, it's it's been shouting us a warning now for several decades that things yeah. are going out of kilter. Uh, and I think that's that that's a real issue. It's a particularly sensitive bird. And we've seen successive Irish governments, including the current one, unfortunately, really failing it. We've known for quite a while now this species has been declining, as have so many other birds like the corncrake, another farmland casualty. But also so many of the Curlew's fellow breeding waders, birds like Redshank, Dunlin, Lapwing, Golden Plover, birds that are perhaps a bit less charismatic at first view, they're also declining massively. Uh, the prey that they feed on is declining massively. Uh, they're being disturbed. We're seeing problems with afforestation, particularly. That's been a big one. So, you know, following on from the, the, the switch mainly to silage and cattle production across Ireland, which doesn't leave space for the curlew at all, we've been seeing forestry plantations of non-native Sitka spruce being put up in the wrong locations. And just, just to be, be clear about this, Birdwatch Ireland is very much in favour of afforestation. Ireland needs a lot more woodland than it has at the moment. It's a very important habitat for wildlife, but it needs the right trees in the right locations. And for too long, these marginal areas where the, uh, the curlews have been pushed to, especially the boglands and the uplands, were seen as waste ground in Ireland and you know no good for anything except planting these trees in and there was talk you know we have to do this to meet our, our carbon targets and so on of course in reality what's happening is those that, those boglands they're the most important carbon stores that we have uh, bogland sequesters more carbon than forestry does so the forest mm-hmm. in the wrong place is, is actually a net emitter of carbon which so it's self-defeating but not only that what it's done is it's allowed predators that uh, that would normally not have been able to get near to the curlews to prey on them because they nest on the ground. They they're very okay. vulnerable. They lay their eggs. They lay their eggs in the ground. The chicks are there, and blocks of forestry in these areas, which were once so open and widespread, it's allowed foxes to sneak up on them. It's given perches for crows to watch from, uh, and it's made these areas far less safe for these curlews. So all of these things are you know are, are conspiring against it. Couple that then with climate change, with pollution, disturbance, and it's it's really uh, uh, showing a lot is going wrong in the Irish countryside. I imagine like I, you know, I asked you there to, to outline the scale of the problem, particularly for people who who didn't grow up hearing the curlew on the flip side of that. Like I'm not a twitcher. OK, I'm not a bird watcher. Um, I, I appreciate birds in my garden and all of that. And I like them, but it's not, you know, it's not a hobby of mine. It's not a passion of mine. Sure. There will be people listening to this conversation tonight who are probably shouting at me and shouting at the radio going, this problem has been going on for years. This is ridiculous. We, You know, and the frustration, I'm sure, in your community is quite high at the moment. We have been hearing about this problem. And I suppose maybe like, and I, and I know tangentially over the years, I've, I've heard about it and I've heard about it. And, and here we go again, we're talking about it and it's in the news for a couple of days and, and then it disappears again. Like... It feels to me like there's nothing being done. Is 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 that fair? I think a lot more needs to be done. There is certainly a lot being done and there's some excellent okay. landowners and farmers out there doing wonderful work. Um, National Parks and Wildlife Service staff, my colleagues in Birdwatch Ireland and other groups have been doing a lot, but it needs a lot more funding, a lot more resource. I think that what we need to recognise in Ireland is that the state needs to do a lot better 
for the landowners and farmers who are trying their best to conserve biodiversity. They don't get the support they deserve when in fact they're doing you and me and everyone listening to us talking now a huge service because biodiversity, it isn't just a luxury for the good times. It's not just a nice thing or something of interest just to children, you know, as entertainment or something for when they're in school. It's much more deep than that. We are animals like any other. We rely on the same environment as those curlews do. And when we see them disappearing and our landscape changing, it, it, it poses questions about the ultimate sustainability of farming as an industry in Ireland. It poses threats to our tourism industry. It poses threats to our water quality, our air quality, our quality of life, all of these things. And the curlew, it isn't unique in that regard by any, to any extent, but, but the, the fact of it is, though, it is an ambassador for the other creatures that get less attention. I think that's what's really important. Another uh, species that's faced very similar pressures and has a similar sort of role is, is a bird of prey called the hen harrier which is actually yes. found in quite similar locations to, mm-hmm. to the curlew. And that's a bird, again, it's, it's, it's conservation in Ireland has been controversial, not because anyone bears any particular ill will to the bird itself. Uh, it's, it's, it's a wonderful bird to have in an ecosystem, a very beautiful species. But because there was fears that having it in an area would, would lead to designations of land that would then restrict what landowners could do. And the fact is, if landowners are taking a hit because they're doing the right thing by biodiversity, the state needs to support them. I think that's really important. I'd like to see the, the, the farming lobby groups doing more to support their members uh, to, to, to try and, and, and to tap into better funding for this. That's what it comes down to, because at the end of the day, this is what we're all, we're all facing. And people might be listening to us now and some, some of them would, 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 would love the curly and think it's, it's, it's wonderful protected. Other people might think, well, OK, it's a shame. But so what? A bird disappears. But yeah, again, a big so deal. Much- like, you know, wh- why should I be bothered? Exactly. That's something we face a lot. And the, the fact of it is we should be bothered because it is shouting a warning to us. It's disappearance shows us that things are going out of kilter. And we're we're sort of there's an onslaught of this in Ireland in recent years we're hearing so much about so many species in trouble so many habitats under threat we're seeing climate change ravaging um, our you know so many of our areas the Midlands for example this flooding during the summer is becoming a fact of life in places like the Shannon Callows which are once strongholds for for the for the, the curlew and, and the corncrake uh, this isn't an act of God this isn't some random thing this is human beings changing the planet and not taking proper care in Ireland to to, to manage our waterways to make sure that there are places to sequester that water and the carbon that's causing the problem the, the lack of forestation in the appropriate areas is causing this as well and these are all symptoms that, and the curly represents that but I think even people who are very hard nosed about it might think oh, I don't care we need to remember too um, we're members of the European Union and the, the sort of a, as a last resort the sort of the, the argument I always fall back on is if the curlew goes extinct in Ireland we the taxpayers face enormous fines as a result of that mm-hmm. uh, and yet the government just doesn't seem to be putting enough effort into this now we're talking earlier about you know, is enough being done. Certainly we were very pleased to see a few years ago a, a national curlew task force was set up by, by the government. Uh, it made a series of recommendations. We're very into, good at setting up these task forces, aren't, aren't we? Aren't we? And they're very good at making excellent recommendations. So back in 2019, they issued mm-hmm. a very hard-hitting but very well-argued and reasoned report uh, which contained a number of the very good recommendations. Those still haven't been implemented. There's all sorts of ones, including one, a very crucial one about, um, you know, because there's so few curlews still nesting in Ireland, one of the recommendations was that the information about where they are found should be shared with the planning authorities and ministerial guidelines given to, to the planners so that they know what sort of developments are appropriate in areas where the curlews are and how the best decisions can be made as what what is in the best interest of biodiversity and climate and so on. That hasn't been implemented. Surely that's easy. Why can't we do that? If the, if the state is so concerned, why can't they just do this? Well, call me cynical, but, but Niall, that would require the left hand knowing what the right one was up to. But... Um... 
you know, perhaps that's for a conversation off air. But now, like, I'm just thinking, I remember because um, my, my my late father was an inspector in the Department of Agriculture. And I remember being brought around as a child to various parts of the bog because he was involved tangentially in the Grey Partridge project. Oh, yes. And and the protection of that and the, 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 the reintroduction of that. And it's something that's brought out as a success story over the past number of decades. Like you mentioned those recommendations there and like something like that, like the planners simply knowing that on that particular section of land, the curlews are nesting, so we need nothing to be built there or whatever it might be. Are there any other measures that we could be taking that the government could be insisting on? Yes, very, very much so. I think, first of all, we need to do more to, first of all, identify where curlews are nesting and then to provide support to the landowners. Because what it takes at the moment, because curlews are in such a dire situation, it needs very intensive management of where they're, they're nesting to get them out of that, that that difficult situation and to ensure that the chicks survive. We have seen some initial successes with what's called head starting, which is giving the chicks a head start in life. Because when they are in the egg and when they just hatch out, that's when they're the most vulnerable to predators. So um, what's been done in some areas is curlew eggs are being taken taken and incubated um, in captivity or the chicks are being taken when they're very young, incubated and, and then released um, when they're when they're better grown, gives them better survival chances. Now that is a very good step. It's very hands-on, very intensive. We also have to realise though that that's not the end of the story. If those if there still isn't sufficient habitat and sufficient food, those curlies won't survive and won't go on to breed. But certainly that, that can be a big help. But it is very, very intensive. Um, another thing as well, of course, is we have issues around particularly invasive alien predators like American mink, uh, a species which has no business being here in Ireland, but which is rife throughout the countryside. Uh, Mink are aquatic and so they have no problem swimming across to islands and through wet meadows and so on. Traditionally places where curlews would nest. So many of these ground nesting birds evolved to nest in that way because where they nested was safe from native mm-hmm. Irish predators. A fox wouldn't be able to get out there. Uh, you know, they wouldn't have to worry about places where crows could perch. They have no defence against the mink and that's been a big issue as well. So I think we need to do we do more to, uh, need to do more to tackle that. I think we also do need to do more to then just give lip service to the biodiversity crisis that we're in. It was, it was May 2019 that Dahl Aaron declared twin climate and biodiversity emergencies. And they have done precious little since then to actually live up to the realities of that. We have seen from situations like like COVID, where quite rightly, the state was able to make enormous sums of money available to tackle a very pressing and urgent emergency. And that was absolutely the right thing to do. I don't know why they can't see that the biodiversity and climate crisis is just such an emergency. It needs far more money thrown out. The amount of money that is invested in conservation in Ireland at a state level is absolutely pathetic. Uh, and I, I know that, you know, one of the things that weighs on my mind is that future generations will curse all of us for living the way we did, for, for fiddling while Rome is burning. But it's not too late to stop this. We absolutely can. It just needs the political will. And we need to think longer than just a five-year election cycle. Someone needs to have the vision and the courage to think, no, I'm thinking long-term. I'm thinking of 100 years. I'm thinking 200 years. What sort of world are we leaving for our kids and our grandkids? That's what we need to look at. Do we need, like I know when the cabinet reshuffle um, was coming around there in December, there was a lot of talk. And I think fairly that the housing crisis need, yeah. needed to become the Department of the Taoiseach's problem, that it needed to yeah. be elevated to that level. And as we're speaking today, there is a part of me wondering, do we need the, the, the Taoiseach's office, whomever is in the role at, at any point in time, do we need them to be the Minister for Climate Change or the Minister for Action Against Climate Change, whatever title they want? But do we need the problem elevated to that level to actually get something done about it? 
I think that's a very interesting suggestion. I, I think that when uh, when future historians and future citizens all around the world look back on this time in human history, they will see that the most pressing issues and the biggest crisis that we face is the twin crisis of climate and biodiversity loss, which, which are linked together in, in, in a very intrinsic way. And I think that from that point of view, that is what will be the defining uh, memory of the early part of the 21st century. And I think that we need to bear that in mind. I think it is I think it is crucial enough that it does need proper attention from the Taoiseach and it needs more long-term thinking. We need bodies like the National Parks and Wildlife Service deserve far more funding and investment than they currently get. The NGO sector within Ireland too also needs more state help. The amount of, of funding that is actually given to NGOs like Birdwatch Ireland and our fellow organizations across Ireland is absolutely minuscule. And it it doesn't it doesn't point to this crisis being taken seriously at all. Um, and I think that, so I, I think your suggestion is a very interesting one. Um, and certainly I think that's something that merits definite serious consideration. Because, I, and the reason I pose that question, and it's not like to um, t- to directly criticise anyone who's in office at present, but, but right now we have a Minister for Environment who also has responsibility for transport, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like these titles get longer and longer. So, you know, one person can only have so much attention. One department can only do so much work. And it just seems like if you're if we're constantly adding to the workload and as someone who works in the public service, I'm very aware of that, that nothing at all gets achieved because, you know, there's only so much that can be done in a day. Yes, indeed. And it can seem overwhelming, particularly mm. the scale of this. And and because so much of the issues around climate and biodiversity, because so much of them seem to be out of our control, um, it's there's a tendency to put it on the long finger or to try and tackle what seem to be the more immediate problems. Because the, the fact of it is, yeah, we're, we're not all going to die tomorrow because of climate change or, or next year. Uh, although some people in the world will. I think we need to bear that in mind as well. Uh, but if it was something over that as the decades pass, it will get worse and worse. And we will Will, you know it, the, the fact of it is the time the time to try and tackle it is now um because the longer it goes on the more costly the more the more difficult it's going to be mm-hmm. but you know uh, you know to be fair politicians have often told me um that when they go door to door at elections climate and biodiversity they're not issues that the public that the electorate are telling them are important to them uh and i think that's something that needs to change as well we need all to recognize that these actually are really important to us in every walk of life it's something that cuts across every industry every socioeconomic background every interest it really does affect us and i think we need to do more to to recognize that and especially what the loss of creatures like the curlew is telling us about the health of our environment and the success or otherwise of our environmental policies so i think it really is it really is crucial and it, it is as serious as that I remember when I was in primary school in the 90s. Um, yes, I am a millennial. Um, but they, the issue of the day was litter. Ireland was a litter black spot. And all of a sudden there was this huge effort and huge drive. And I remember like in Tullamore in the St. Patrick's Day, dressing up in a black plastic sack and having rub- rubbish in inverted commas attached to me so that we could display how interested we were. And like, you would go home and you would go out shopping maybe with your parents and you'd say, oh, no, 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 that's litter, don't litter. And it was from, you know, from the mouth of babes, you know, comes change. And I know that primary school teachers are working on this and I hear it from my friends' children that they do, they come home and they're scared. And like, is there some form of campaign needed to to educate young children so that they can come home and vocalize this at home and try and make it one of the issues 
that politicians come across on the doorstep. Um, but I think there is a level of fear there amongst educators and amongst parents that if we talk too much to youngsters about this, that they will genuinely be frightened and and frightened too much for their age level. Yes, and, and that obviously is a concern because we, we do ourselves in Brother Turn here from a lot of children who are very scared about this and also that powerlessness that they have. We all remember what mm. it's like to be a child. You might have these huge concerns and you have these, these these great ideas, but you just feel that nobody's listening and nobody cares and you don't have the power to, to, to fight against the system. You know, I, I think that it really is important to give children a voice. They are the ones who are going to have to live with the consequences of this much more than you or I will. And I think that that's, that's really important. I think that more needs to be done as well to give the necessary resources and information to the teachers into how to tackle this how to um how to tackle i suppose in an optimistic way for the children to show that this is not a done deal um people like them can make a difference i think we need to recognize as well that the way that we are living our lives in this part of the world is making life increasingly intolerable for people in other parts of the world and i think that that's a really important message too i think we we, we tend to think that oh well us here on our small island, there's only so much that we can do. It doesn't really make a difference if China and India and the United States and all these other countries are doing this. What does it matter what we do? I think it does matter. I think we can be leaders by example. I think we can show that Ireland can, can punch above its weight. Look what happened in terms of, of things like uh, the plastic bag levy, the the, the, the smoking ban, all of these yeah. things. We were world leaders in this. And we take pride in that. We, we in Ireland like to like to think that we're, we're, we're leading the world in some way, in our small way. Uh, I think we can do the punching same. Punching above our a, weight and all of that, as we do weight. often exactly. say. Exactly right. Exactly right. I think that you, you use the example of litter there. I think that's a really important one. That The thing is that with a litter problem, people could see it all around us. You could see there was litter, there were, there were plastic bags in the hedgerows, there were bins spilling over. And so the problem was clear and the solution was clear. And so it was a, it was a very obvious solution. And then when we knew that there was an easy way to solve this and, and it just took a bit of hard work, then that's something that people in Ireland are very good at getting behind. When it comes to things like climate change and biodiversity loss, it's far more insidious and hidden and something that takes mm-hmm. place over a much more gra- gradual time. The, the fact of it as well, you know, the, the, that old analogy of the frog in the slowly heating water doesn't jump out because it doesn't realise that the water's getting so hot that it'll eventually boil. We're kind of like that. We do live in a bubble here in Ireland. And sometimes it's good to see Ireland through the eyes of people who are used to other environments in other countries. I think that's really important. So one thing that, you know, I have quite a lot of friends who and, and colleagues who are very interested in wildlife and, and have been all their lives. When they come to Ireland, the comment is always the same. They always say, Ireland is a lovely place, lovely people. How come you guys don't have any trees? Why are there no trees here? And when you look at it, our level of tree cover in Ireland is the lowest in the European Union, aside from Malta, which is which is a tiny island with very different climate conditions to ours. Uh, and they are right. Well, we've taken this this low level of tree cover as being the norm, whereas in fact it's not. It's, it jumps out to to to, to other people. And I know I, I I appreciate the irony of me a few minutes ago saying you know, we, we don't want trees in the areas where the curlews are because that's a problem. But we do need trees in the appropriate areas. We do need to give more land over to this in areas where it's not you know where where, it's, where the trees are supposed to be. Uh, and I think that's that's important. We need to have a proper understanding, I suppose, of. What, what our land can be used for and how it's going to most benefit us. Farming is a very important part of that, absolutely. But we need to do more to support the farmers, as I keep saying, who are doing the right thing for biodiversity and want to do more. Well, Niall Hatch of Birdwatch Ireland, thank you for joining us today to discuss the crisis in the curlew population, but of course, uh, the, the, the massive impact that that will have. You're listening to Let's Go Green here on Midlands 103. Well, global pop stars Harry Styles and Michael Bublé have been beaten in this week's ARIA album charts by a bunch of very unlikely Aussie icons.
Yes, you heard it correctly. The calls and croaks of 58 endangered Aussie frogs have scored third place on the charts with their album Songs of Disappearance. Uh, almost, uh, excuse me for this, leapfrogging over Taylor Swift <laughs> and Paul Kelly. Don't excuse yourself, Pam. You that, you say that, I'm of that pride. pride. Well, that was a clip from Australian TV show The Project, which I uh, found after my conversation with Niall Hatch. I don't know if you heard the story before Christmas, but this album that had been put together with a view to raise awareness about Australian frogs and the different types of them and the different calls that they make and how endangered they are. Well, it did get to um, the top th- three spot, I think it was, in the, in the album charts there in Australia before Christmas, much to everyone's surprise. But it got an awful lot of media coverage and it does seem to have gotten people talking about frogs in Australia and how important they are in the environment. And it got me to thinking, do we need something similar? Like, I know it's a bit cheesy and, and, and I bit naff, really. But do we need something with the potential to go viral? Like that album, like you can look it up on Spotify. It's had thousands upon thousands of downloads and plays. It got media coverage here as far away as here in Ireland at the time. Maybe we need to be a little bit, you know, creative in raising awareness about the plight of the curlew and indeed all native species that are currently under threat as a direct result of climate change and indeed the uh, biodiversity loss and and habitat loss. But what do you think? Would an album of collective calls of Irish birds, could we get it to the top of, of the charts, do you think? know what you think. Drop me a line through the midlands103.com website. Click on the on-air team and there you will find myself, Ashling O'Rourke, and you, there's a little button there where you can send me a message directly through the site or indeed you can email me on green at midlands103.com and I should say, it goes that saying, I do love hearing from you so if there is something that you feel I should be mentioning on the show or talking about on the show, please do use that email address and indeed the website to get in contact with me and I will be delighted to have a chat with you. Well, coming up after the break, as I mentioned earlier, we have a chat with a young Westmeath woman who is only in third year in secondary school, but she's already reached global heights. You're listening to Let's Go Green here on Midlands 103. Well, You might remember our next guest in one of our very first shows here on Midlands 103 on Let's Go Green. We spoke to a young Westmeath lady, Clodagh Ramsey, who had managed to create a costume out of, well, stuff that you might see in the average garden. And Clodagh joins us now to give us a bit of an update. Um, Clodagh, you're very welcome back to Let's Go Green, first off. Thank you so much for having me. 
Now, Claude, you were taking part in what's called Junk Couture, this this international competition of uh, young people who make uh, clothing or costumes out of recycled materials. But just for people's memory, just jog our memories, what exactly was your project all about? So my project was all about true sustainability. It was a fully circular design that was alive. So it was fashion that was living. <laughs> so that was a first for Junk Couture. And this all happened, Clauda, because um, this project was uh, mentioned to you in school, I believe? Yeah, it was an after-school activity in my school. Okay, and, and we, might, we might as well give the school a bit of a shout-out here, Clauda. So, so what year are you in and what school is it? I'm in third year now and I go to Wilson's Hospital School in County okay. Westmead. So, uh, yeah, a big year, third year, uh, but we won't worry about that just yet. So, Claude, when you say that your your costume was living, how, how exactly does that work? Yeah, so I had black grasses in the shoulder piece of my design, which were watered three to four times daily. And I also sprayed the moss in my bodice. Where did you come up with the idea for this? Like, you know, clothing is not something we tend to have to water. So, um where did this genius idea appear to you? Well, I was greatly inspired by nature. So this is where I got my main idea, my design. Okay. And talk to me about the nuts and bolts then of putting it together. How exactly do you go about putting something like this together and then make sure that it survives? It was very difficult to actually keep it alive, especially when traveling to Abu Dhabi. So I had to wet wrap the grasses because they have roots and they're in the bodice. And to keep them very hydrated. And the moss is also attached to my bodice, which has to be sprayed. Okay. Okay. And so first things first, this is for people who are not familiar with junk couture. I'm I'm delighted to say that when I took part in it, it was called form infusion. But I have very fond memories of taking part in it in school. And it was a brilliant initiative back then. And so I imagine it's like in superb nowadays. Um, So you go through and you have, am I right in thinking there's a competition in your school first? And then if you're chosen to participate in the regional finals, and then you go from regional to the Dublin City Final or Milan or New York. And then you go to the World Final. And you got all the way to the World Final. You <laughs> got to the very end. Which is, in fairness, a pretty spectacular achievement. And this has been going on now for several months. So tell us, what was the experience like? Where did you go and what was it all like? It was such an amazing experience and Abu Dhabi is just spectacular. I got to visit the Warner Brothers World, Yaz Beach and the Sheikh Zayed Mosque, which was just breathtaking. And it was a very busy five days. I'd I'd say you're exhausted at this point, are you? (laughs) Just getting back into normality. (laughs) Has the adrenaline stopped pumping just yet? Not just yet. First day back to school tomorrow. So, but I do have a maths test tomorrow. So that's not great. (laughs) <laughs> hopefully if your teacher's listening to this when they're marking it then they might go a little bit easy on you given what you've been through the past couple of days so tell me you you go to Abu Dhabi and you're competing and I believe there was other people from Ireland at the competition as well yeah I met so many lovely people from all around the world and the two guys that actually won overall they're from Longford and they were my favorites from the very beginning um but Jim Couture is not like any other because everybody is just so supportive and helpful and we're just all like one big family 
And what was it like being on the world stage like that? Like for those of us who weren't there, talk us through the, the atmosphere and the, the whole experience of it. So there was a huge build up to the world final. So we had dress rehearsals the day before and we got to know our running order, how big the stage was, the lights, everything like that. And then the actual day of the competition, it was incredible. It was so busy and it was on the Etihad Arena and it was massive. It was huge. So it was just such an amazing feeling to be on stage and to spread my message. Was it at all daunting or scary? I didn't find so. I love the stage. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was thinking this much. You're very, very confident for your age, Cloda, and obviously terribly talented. So you, you know, you've got what, how many people were in the arena for the competition, do you think? I actually don't know how much, but it was a bit bigger than the Dublin City final. (laughs) Okay, okay, okay. So a a large crowd and you have to what, take to the runway? Yep, it's a 45-second performance and you just start your stuff. And do they then quiz you on your design or how do they find out about the, where all it all came from? So the day before in the dress rehearsal, there's pre-judging where the judges come around one by one and you tell them all about, you kind of, kind of brief them on your design. Okay, and then we get to the finale in Abu Dhabi and you're taking home, you took home an award with you. Yes, I took home the Innovation Award and I was so delighted to win this one as it is what I set out to do and I was acknowledged for that because the Innovation Award is something that nobody has really done before and I wanted to have the first ever living piece. So that was a fully circular design and it would have life after jump chore as well. And I know, like, you strike me, Claude, as a very ambitious young woman. And innovation is a very topical term when it comes to business and education circles. So you're starting off on a, on a strong footing, I think. I think so, too. <laughs> <laughs> so now, like, take me back. This has been going on over the last, is, it has been going on for what, 12 months now at this stage? Yeah, it's been a full year. Okay. And did you did you imagine ever getting to the world final of it all? Absolutely not. I can remember when I first started off in school and I was delighted to just get to my region, mm. let alone to be on the world stage. Now that you've been there, done that, would you recommend if there's people listening that like their teachers mentioned this juncture thing in school, would, would you recommend people get involved in it? I would definitely recommend getting involved in it because... Now, I hope I've inspired other upcoming contestants to see how far Junkashore can actually take you. What's next for you? Well, apart from my mocks, <laughs> the next step for my design mm-hmm. is it to be replanted into wooden plant boxes made by the woodwork classes in Wilson's, and then it can be enjoyed as a new piece. Fabulous. So this is the whole idea of the, the circular economy, circular design that, you know, it's come from nature and you're now returning it to nature as such. Exactly. It doesn't just stop after the world final because it's life after temperature. Have you any more uh, design ideas or innovation ideas in, in, in that head of yours? I had lots. I wanted to participate this year, but I have to give it a break. Just do my junior cert and then maybe in TY I can come back again. 
Right. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure um, there'll be others that'll be thinking, ah, no, give the rest of us a chance, Sloda. But um, I, yeah, fair play. If you enjoyed it that much, why not give it a go when you have a time? I know um, the last time we spoke, Sloda, am I right in thinking you mentioned dentistry was kind of where you were aiming for? Yes. Is, is that still the case? Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Well, sure, you never know. We might have some innovative new dentistry equipment or toothbrushes down the line. Uh, I, su- I, I suggest you're, you're not going to be your average dentist anyway. Nope, I'm never average, am I? <laughs> <laughs> Well, Claude Ramsey, well done. Uh, Congratulations on the Innovation Award at the Junk Couture World Finals in Abu Dhabi. Um, It's certainly a highlight, I think, on the CV so far. But I I suspect it will be a very, very um, ambitious CV when we look back in a few years' time. But, Claude, thanks very much for keeping us updated. And uh, once again, Claude, your, your advice to anybody wanting to take part in Junk Couture this year? I would just say go for it because it's an incredible experience and maybe one day that could be you on the world stage too. Well, Claudia, thank you so much for your time. And we should give your mum a shout out. She did travel to the world finals and I'd say is equally as jet lagged as you are. Is that fair to say? Indeed, yeah. And I just want to thank my teacher at Wilson, Miss Bray, as without her giving her time so generously, none of this would be possible. And also my mum, who's helped support me every single step of the way. Well, I'm sure there'll be many people in your family and indeed at Wilson's. Very proud of you all together, Clodagh. Very best of luck in the old maths test and the mocks and, and the junior cert come June. Thank you so much for having me again, Ashley. Thanks, Cloda. You're listening to Let's Go Green here on Midlands 103. I hope you have been enjoying our show this evening. And just a reminder, I'm very interested in hearing from people who are experts at repairing things. So are you good at, I don't know, tech repairs? Are you good at sewing and hemming trousers and taking them in? Or or maybe you're a cobbler. I'd love to hear from you because as we've discussed on the show on numerous occasions, we have, I think, in our households, in many cases, lost the ability to repair things. So we're binning clothing, we're binning shoes, we're binning computers, perhaps, that don't necessarily need to be binned, that we could be repairing and running, uh, getting up and running again and, and maybe giving a second life to them. And while, yes, it's great to go to the charity shops and the vintage stores and, and uh, picking up older items and giving them a second life, you know, why not look internally at our own wardrobes and our own houses and seeing what is just sitting there because we intended on getting it to, you know, the alterations person. Could we learn to do it ourselves? Not to take business away from anybody, but are there skills that we've lost that we could relearn? And perhaps we need to if we are going to have a truly circular economy that we are becoming a society that wastes as little as possible. Perhaps it's overly ambitious, but I'm inspired by Clodagh Ramsey's ambition and her generation. So, you know, I reckon if we put our minds to it, we can do it. So if you're a cobbler, if you're a seamstress, if you're in the repairs industry, can you come on to Let's Go Green some Monday night and have a chat with me and uh, give us some tips and tricks on how we can get the absolute full life cycle out of the items in our homes? You can get in contact with me, as I mentioned earlier, through the Midlands103.com website. And of course, 
I must say, if you are intending on listening to me on a Monday evening, but, you know, life gets in the way. You don't get to switch on the radio at seven o'clock in the evening. Don't forget that we are available on Spotify, Apple and indeed Google Podcasts. So please do uh, remember to share each episode with your friends and family. And if you're feeling very generous, go on to Apple Spotify, Apple Podcasts, my apologies, and give us a review there. Those ratings are important to us here in Midlands 103 and we appreciate you for being so generous with your comments. Well, I'm afraid that is all we have time for on Let's Go Green this Monday evening. I hope you have a great week. I hope you are inspired by Cloda and her colleagues and best wishes to all secondary school students taking part in Junk Couture this year. Fingers crossed we will have more winners from the Midlands in 2024 at the World Finals. Listen, I better go and hand you over to the main man, Mr Cooney, but have a great week, stay safe and I'll be back on Let's Go Green next week at 7pm.